Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, chef, culinary director, author, and entrepreneur, Margaret Fox. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. Snap Sessions is proud to announce our own Doug Nunn is publishing his book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, just in time for the holidays. Just listen to these reviews. From the Snow Yorker. (laughs) One of the ten coldest books of the year, a genuine tour de frost. From the North Pole Review of Books. An extraordinary look behind the scenes at just maybe the most benevolent operation on the whole planet. This book salutes the man and the crew who have brought us more joy than anyone else. In this time of pandemic and wannabe fascists, Santa's story needed to be told, and Frosty, Mrs. C, and their frozen crews do it with splendid vigor. From North Pole Variety. Excellently ecstatic. Xmas expose. And from renowned German critic Ralph Primer. Five out of five stars. Ho 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 becomes ha ha ha. Jolly Old Elf can be purchased at Amazon.com, at independent publisher Ingram Spark, and ordered at your local bookstore like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles, online at gallerybookshop.com. Check Snap Sessions' website, thesnapsessions.com, for further information. Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, makes a great gift. The Worst Day in America versus The Best Day Anywhere Else. The one thing I want my kids to know when, the, when they get out of school <clears throat> about America is that the worst day in America beats the best day in any other country. <laughs> this is a quote from a parent named Jason Moore who went to the Texas school board back in 2010 to make it crystal clear that he wanted his kids taught American exceptionalism in their U.S. history class. John Oliver noted the quote on his show last week tonight, just last year, adding, Your worst day in America really depends on who you are, and importantly, when you are. The worst day in America beats the best day in any other day, any day, any day, any day, any other day, any other country. So let's take a look at this statement, Mr. Moore. Let's reflect on some days in America and see how they stand up to some best days in any other country. Let's travel back in time 
to 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when a mob of white citizens, some armed by city officials, attacked the African-American residents of Black Tulsa after a 19-year-old black elevator operator was arrested for alleged assault of a white teenage girl. The Tulsa Race Massacre left as many as 300 black citizens dead. The white rioters destroyed homes, businesses, churches, stores, a hospital, school, and library in an area that was prosperous enough to be known as Black Wall Street, decimating the thriving community. Is this American day better than taking a walk in the English countryside and ending up at a pub on a warm summer evening? I'm just asking citizen Jason Moore. I need to know. Or let's look back to 1833, when President Andrew Jackson ordered the forced relocation of the Cherokee Nation from northern Florida to what would become the Oklahoma Territory a death march which became known as the Trail of Tears, with these words. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Is this famous moment in U.S. history better than sitting in a Munich beer garden, having a hearty meal of schnitzel, homemade spätzle noodles, pickled red cabbage, and a liter of great beer, Mr. Jason Moore? I'm just checking, but I'd like you to give this some thought. What about the day of March 25, 1911, at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in Manhattan, when a fire killed 146 garment workers, mostly women and girls? The workers died from fire, smoke inhalation, and jumping from windows to their deaths after they were locked in the factory by their employers, a common practice at the time to keep them from taking unauthorized breaks. Was that a great day for America? Could this splendid day in the annals of American capitalism compare to riding the bullet train through the Japanese countryside with Mount Fuji in the distance on the way to a fine meal in a sushi shop in Tokyo? I'm just curious, because I think I know which one I'd choose. Another day that we'd like to get your feelings about is February 19, 1942 when President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order forcing almost 120,000 Japanese Americans into internment camps. These American citizens lost businesses, homes, and personal property, and were incarcerated for the next three years merely because they were Japanese Americans, an atrocious violation of civil rights. Is that a better day than one of sightseeing the Inca ruins of Machu Picchu in the Andes Mountains, followed by a nature walk at Peru's wildlife-filled Paracas National Reserve? Oh, here's another query. Is it better to spend a day as one of the more than 550,000 homeless people in America than it is to be a member of Finland or Denmark's consistently happy populations as measured by the United Nations World Happiness Report? 
Or here's another question. Is it better to be a toilet cleaner on a hot, sweaty day in bumfuck Texas? than it is to be a twinkle-eyed, happy actor preparing to entertain an audience in a beautiful opera production at an outdoor theater in Florence, Italy? These are questions we'd like answers to, Mr. Jason Moore of Texas, because it strikes us that the worst day in any country has a lot more to do with one's class, one's economic circumstances, and one's location in any variety of lovely places on this planet than it does with one's nationality. And I don't need to be told over and over again about how exceptional my country is or to have it lorded over someone from another place. Just last year, America was exceptional at ripping immigrant children from their families' arms at the Mexican border exceptional at remaining the only country to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, and very exceptional in the number of COVID-19 deaths for a single country. In fact, we are still number one at that, ahead of both Brazil and India, the latter a country that has four times as many people as we do. Like many Americans, I love baseball, cheeseburgers, rock and roll, and the Marshall Plan, but that doesn't make me exceptional. Nationalism is for morons. Uh, well, he can't outsmart me because I'm a moron. The fact of the matter is, we are lucky to be Earthlings on this lovely planet Earth, and that's a lot better than breathing the burning atmosphere of Venus or walking on the dusty sands of Mars. So, Mr. Moore, let's wise up. The best day on planet Earth is beautiful, and it has nothing to do with any country's exceptionalism. It has to do with being lucky to be a human being on this beautiful planet. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Welcome, Margaret Fox, to Snap Sessions. It's really exciting to have you, as I don't know that we've interviewed a chef yet. This is, of course, an exciting thing for me. I was a cook for eight years, and I worked under you, actually. So I, I saluted you for about five months back in about 89. Great to have you, <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm always curious with culinary people. Did they start being interested in food? How much cooking did you do as a kid? Well, I sort of couldn't avoid being fascinated by food because my mom loved to cook and my dad loved to eat and had an enormous appreciation of great food. His parents were mm -hmm. from Hungary and to hear tell all the stories 
the women in that family just baked all day long. And so he grew up with amazing food. And his father was a butcher. There was always meat, even during the Depression, because wow. he couldn't sell it, you know, and so they brought it home. Yeah. But my mom became a fantastic cook after she got married. She never cooked before she was married. And so eating delicious food long before the days of it being the thing to do was just par for the course. And my mom had an ever-growing cookbook and clippings collection that really staggered the mind if you ever saw it. It was sort of like not really very well balanced. It was growing always on the side of the kitchen table. So I became interested in food. And uh, if I can have a, a brief audiovisual. When I, was, when I was nine, my dad brought this book home to me, The Better Homes and Gardens Junior Cookbook. Yeah, I've seen that. That's great. Uh, this is my original book. And you might think, oh, what's the first thing you ever cooked when you were little? Great. Well, it was this French toast on which I scribbled June 13th, 1964. My goodness. That's great. Isn't that great? It was very influential, and I poured over this. There was something so exciting about it and like oh look what you could make and you know it just went on and on and on so um so that was very influential and I just want to point out apropos of French toast we know uh, that later you became famous for your French toast the one that got soaked overnight uh, oh or, right yeah and you would take the French toast and make the the batter yeah, the, you, the mix mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you would put the bread in there and it would soak overnight and it was so deadly good because <laughs> it was just soaked with all this French toast material and remember we mm. also always used real maple syrup Oh, yeah, that's Real right. Real maple syrup. Mm, so yeah. good. Well, I'm glad you showed that. It's an audiovisual <laughs> treat. Um, and my sister and I had a Betty Crocker Jr. Mm -hmm. book. There's still the thumbprints. Yes. With, it was a Bisquick version, so oh, there's God. still the thumbprints with the Bisquick on that. I so. love it. You went on to Santa Cruz for college. You know, I think it had a kind of a reputation as a kind of a hip school. I went to Berkeley, you know, just up in the East Bay from there. Mm -hmm. But you guys kind of out-hipped us in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, it yeah. was the school to apply to the year I applied and I actually didn't get in and I was devastated absolutely crushed I couldn't even imagine what I was going to do and well what I did was I went to community college and it was fine and I got in as a junior and the second I arrived I was like they made a terrible mistake I would have made a great freshman here yeah but um but I loved my time there no it was fantastic and you majored in psych Majored in psych, developmental psych. I was really lucky. A fantastic professor was on sabbatical from Harvard, and he was who I worked with very closely for my, well, certainly my senior year and a bit my junior year. And uh, Santa Cruz has a reputation as being kind of small colleges within the overall school. So mm -hmm. you do get more attention oh, with yeah. professors and stuff like absolutely. that. And you felt that, that you oh, got Oh, absolutely. It was yeah. an amazing school. And and it sort of answered the question, how do you extend a Girl Scout camp experience? You go to a place like UC Santa Cruz where it's beautiful and there are redwoods and, and it smells good and all that kind of stuff. And then I realized when I moved here, it was like extending that experience again. They're, it's beautiful and there are redwoods and there's the ocean. I've lived near the ocean my entire life. So... I'm a small town girl, I guess. What was your original small town? Los Angeles was okay. my original <laughs> small town. And we downsized and moved to the East Bay uh, when I was seven. Uh -huh. And then it's just been 
ever smallening since. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like they're the verb to small. That's very good. <laughs> you graduated the same year I did, 75, and you ended up moving up to Mendocino. Tell us about your motivations for moving to Mendo, because it's kind of a quirky place to move to. It, it mm-hmm. is, and it wasn't the first choice by a long shot. I was supposed to work at a friend's cooking school in Napa Valley. I was very, very excited about that. He had a lot of French chefs come and teach. And so I graduated and I did some research projects for this professor during the summer, knowing I had something to do. And of course, all my friends were either finishing their own you know, senior year or going on to graduate school, but I had something to do. And at the last second, I think it was like the next to the last week in August, I called the home of my friend who was actually in Europe and his partner said, oh no, 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 you, we don't have a place for you. There's no place to sleep and it's just much too disorganized. There's no job here. And I was just so stunned. I was horrified. I slammed the phone down, burst into tears, went out to the living room and said to my dad, what am I going to do? My dad very calmly put the paper down and he said, just right off the bat, he goes, why don't you go to Mendocino? I'm like, Mendocino? He goes, yeah, your mom and I have been there several times. We love it. It's beautiful. It's small. You can call Bill Zaka and find a place to live. Like, like all you had to do was call this person who I didn't know and find a place to live. And he goes, oh, oh and there's a bakery there. It's perfect for you. And now at the time, was, was baking your sort of forte? I really loved baking. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the only thing I did mm-hmm. by a long shot, but mm-hmm. I loved baking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And so in the way that things seem so simple in the past, like life these days seems somehow more com- much more complicated. But in mm-hmm. the past, it was like, oh, Mendocino, that's a great idea. I called my friend Katie. I said, let's go up to Mendocino. She said, great. My mom has an RV. We'll drive up in that. I'm like, great. And literally, that's how it happened. Just add water and stir. I mean, it just came <laughs> to fruition that easily. It was a combination of serendipity and sort of instant baking powder. Exactly. Yeah, and it boomed there. Now, you came up with these aspirations, but what kind of kitchen work did you initially get in Mendocino? Well, what I didn't know, of course, I knew nothing except what my father had told me about Mendocino. And we came right, oh, I don't know, right before Labor Day. Of course, that was in a time when the season was Memorial Day, to Labor Day. And everything else was, you know, just non-existent. Well, I didn't know that. So there I am knocking on doors at, you know, maybe I'll make beds at an inn, maybe, you know, whatever, because I was only planning on being here for about, I don't know, two or three months. So I could kind of like breathe and get some school out of my system before I went on to graduate school. And I was just met with a series of no all the way up the coast with people looking at me oddly, like, do you know The season is about to be over. Oh, my God. So by the time I got to Mendocino, I was totally flipped. And a chance comment from a shopkeeper sent me to the Mendocino Hotel. It was in the midst of being renovated by um, R.O. Peterson. This would be late 75, 76. Yeah, it was 75. And uh, and they said, oh, they're looking for a baker. I'm like, oh, okay. I go in. I say, hi, I'm a baker and I'm looking for a job. And this amazing, just like... A hard-boiled older woman who kind of talked like that mm-hmm. uh, took me on a tour mm-hmm. of the kitchen and I had never baked commercially in my whole life there was all this commercial equipment and I said things like oh what a beautiful mixer oh my gosh the the ovens are great like I knew what I was talking about and I was hired 
that easily. <laughs> Nobody asked me anything. And that was $3.25 an hour. I rushed back down to the Bay Area and had to learn how to bake commercially. And I went to two different bakeries and told the people there, I have to learn how to bake commercially. What can you show me? I was shown. I'm like, oh, okay. Thinking, okay. I mean, it's baking. It's just on a big scale, but okay. Yeah. And my dad drove me up to Mendocino and I started my job. And I was the baker at the Mendocino Hotel. I shared that job with an older woman who hated me. <laughs> and I, I think she was very jealous of her position. Although she never made bread. She just made grasshopper pie. And I never made grasshopper pies, so I don't know what the big deal was. But did, anyway. Did you sort of divide the job with her, or uh, was it uh, 50% her and 50% you? Or? Well, I definitely worked five days a week, So, mm -hmm. but we mm -hmm. never overlapped. How weird. I don't. I have no memory of exactly how we worked that out, but, um, but I definitely put in my... My hours. It was and fun. You did that, and uh, did you do any other cooking jobs before the Beaujolais sort of reared its head as a possibility? Not up here. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, not really ever. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a teenager when Chez Panis started, and when a lot of um, really cool little food businesses were started in a very no pun intended, organic kind of way. I mean, it just sort of yeah. developed uh, yeah. out of people's interest and creativity. And there was like the best sandwich shop in the world was in Berkeley and the best cheese shop, the cheese board, which was, yeah. you know, the width of the store was the length of this table, very small. And Pete's uh -huh. Coffee. Oh, yeah, and I mean, right. all yeah. these places that, you know, now are so well known, um, they were all starting then. And it definitely piqued my interest. And my mom and sister and I used to, sit around talking about what re kind of restaurant we would start if we could and what the name of it would be and uh, what we would make. I figured you would spend some time in the East Bay on Shattuck Avenue, mm -hmm. Chez Panisse mm -hmm. and all. When I was getting out of Berkeley, I noticed that that was happening. I, at the time, I didn't think I could afford to eat. Oh, I couldn't whatever. either. Yeah. No, no. But you couldn't help but notice that right. this was bubbling up and people were making really good bread from scratch and, right. and Chez Panisse was booming. So that influenced you. Yeah, there. definitely. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. um, my sister and I had a weekly allergy shot at a pediatrician that was three blocks away. So we were making these trips into Berkeley often. And when we would have our appointment on Saturday morning, my dad would bring us in and he loved to explore. Mm -hmm. And so he would be happy to spend time and he loved to eat and, you know, taste all these things. And so we just, you know, were immersed in that. And it seemed like second nature, no big deal, but cool, really mm -hmm. interesting. I think it was so influential. And I couldn't afford to eat at Chipanese either, yeah. even though it was like, I don't know, like something crazy, like could it have been the whole meal for $12? I mean, yeah. it was something really, now you just really laugh. <laughs> I don't know if she, what the prices are now, but she stayed kind of reasonable. You could get a pizza there for a decent price, right. as I recall, into the 80s. You know? uh -huh. Initially, there was a Cafe Beaujolais. Oh, yeah. Tell us the stories, the origin stories about you getting involved with the Beaujolais. I knew Marilyn Douglas, and Marilyn Douglas had a Mendocino jams and jellies, and right. she was a, an amazing cook. She was amazing at anything in the kitchen. She cooked part-time at the Beaujolais, mm -hmm. and I believe it was through her that I learned that they were interested in selling and sort of were winding down a bit or were sort of not as enthusiastic as they had been initially. Um, the family lived upstairs, and I think that must be really difficult 
to never be able to escape your workplace. And I heard that um, that they were looking for somebody to bake the bread. Well, the bread there was so special. There were little loaves that were served on a breadboard. I mean, it was part of this amazing magic ritual that occurred at the beginning of every meal. Mm -hmm. The butter pats were made in these presses that had an imprint of something on them and popped out onto the board. I mean, And so I went and said, could I make bread for you? And they said, we would love that. And so every morning I got up at some crazy early hour, like four or something like that, and made bread for the Beaujolais and took it over and deposited it and... It was really, it was very special. So you're baking for the Beaujolais. How did it come up as an option that you would take it over? They wanted to sell. It was a little bit of a let's put on a show reaction. And four of us got together and said, well, let's do it. And I think my feeling was about a lot of things then was until somebody absolutely forbids me to do it or the universe steps in and says, no way, I'm just going to keep on going along the path because this sounds so fun and so neat. So we put a bid in. I mean, the whole thing was sort of handshake and it never went on the market. It was just like, you want it? You've got the money. Great. It's yours. It was that kind of a thing. So we closed it down, and its last night of service was, I believe, New Year's Eve of 1976, and we opened on April 28th, 1977. During this almost four months, four solid months, did you revamp the menu, and we're going to change this completely? Was it your baby mostly, or did you have the other three people being backers? Or No, there were three of us very involved and one person was more of a, a money person who often became involved but he, he wasn't a food person i hadn't even ever even worked in a restaurant mine was all just like fantasy and having eaten at the beaujolais because that by that point i had eaten at the beaujolais my big splurge was the chicken liver omelet which uh -huh. was the least expensive thing on the menu <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I think we were mesmerized by what they were doing and what they had French and, you know, family style and all, all this kind of stuff. And and um, one of the one of the partners had a friend who had worked at Chez Panisse. And we thought, oh, he's going to be our chef. This is going to be great. But he turned out to be not so great. And then we were all in a quandary over what to do for dinner. But we also had opened for breakfast and lunch and that was much more my orientation so we cooked breakfast and lunch and did dinner from I don't know it was in fits and starts sometimes it was just the summer I started to have cooking friends who would come up and cook for the summer in 79 I bought my partners out I don't even know how they had confidence in me but alone from my parents they weren't the kind of people who had a lot of money and who just you know higgledy piggledy thought it would be great to give a loan but somehow they gave me a loan and I had a series of rotating cooks for the weekend and unfortunately that was the summer that coincided with the great gas shortage oh yeah which you sure. remember where 79? people people were in lines like yeah. miles long waiting for their gasoline this was not the right time to ask somebody to drive at least 150 miles mm -hmm. to come to mendocino so it was a bleak kickoff i'll tell you what were some of your dreams about the Bosch? you mentioned you know you're cooking breakfast and lunch you're doing dinner without really knowing what you're doing but what were some of your big aspirations actually when i think back about it it's more about how to give people 
the best experience. That was something. Mendocino seemed so magic, and that house was imbued with so much character and blood, sweat, and tears. It certainly wasn't a restaurant before the Pitsenberger family took it over, and they just breathed life into it, and it felt like it had a spirit of sorts, and we wanted to continue doing that. We tried to grow a garden. We hired friends to be the gardeners there, but that was incredibly expensive. We learned that the hard way. I mean, we made every mistake you could ever make, but we wanted to cook fresh food and probably do something a little French, and uh, because that was definitely the orientation at that time. I mean, that was the beginning of the whole Chez Panisse thing was very French, you know, and that was our, what would you say, sort of the, the country and culture from which so much began in those days. I mean, Julia Child. And I grew up watching Julia Child. And my mom and sister and I were just like at the screen, my mother scribbling down little notes and, you know, dashing yeah. into the kitchen. Now, you mentioned the Pitsenbarger family. They owned it before you. You yes. bought it from them. Yes. And then is it Eric who wrote a book about their experiences he's, there? He's actually writing a book, and it's called Beaujolais in My Blood. Mm-hmm. I have been lucky enough to read the manuscript. It is everything. It is so charming. It is laugh-out-loud funny. It is poignant. It is so, so good. I've been blown away. I read the manuscript again the other day and I was just like, oh my God. It feels like we're a thousand years away from those days. And so it offers a tremendous slice of that particular life. And he also has a blog called rocksoupstory.net. It also is very charming and beautiful pictures and lots of stories about the actual act of writing the book, some things about Mendocino. It's definitely worth paying attention to. I can't wait till that book comes out. I'm really excited. He's a son of the family Uh then? And so he grew up at the restaurant. Absolutely. All three kids did. Upstairs. Yikes. Can't escape. So there you are. And so now you're finding your way with the Bauge. And you're influenced by a lot of Nouvelle Cuisine mm-hmm. and Bay Area, Chez Panisse, etc. You've mentioned a little bit about learning as you went. I remember you being, you know, 27, 28 oh at the time. So young. And, you know, you've got this massive, uh, how am I going to get my business skills? I got my cooking skills are one thing. And, you know, you've got that. You've got inspiration and spirit. But how are you combining all this? Well, I always say it's good that you don't know how much you don't know. And then you can foolishly blunder on through. Because if you ever sort of, you know, wrote down on a page everything that was happening and and the equations you were going to have to figure out, you'd go, oh, I could never do that. That's impossible. But I was lucky. My dad was self-employed. And he started as a salesman in a paint store in Salinas and worked his way up to owning his own business, uh, representing painting products and all kinds of stuff in the industry. He, He was an amazing model for me. He was really ethical, smart, sensible, steady, thoughtful person. And he knew what hard work was, and he just taught that to us by his example. And every dinner... We would sit down at six. My mom would make this lovely little meal. And my dad would talk about his day. And the kids would pipe in at the end about, well, and today at school I did X and, you know, my sister Emily did Y. But really it was about my dad's day. And so we grew up knowing everybody's name and the driving he did and where he stayed and what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, I picked it up by osmosis, I realized, Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Okay, well, that's the theory. 
okay, I, you know, it was in the air sort of thing. But doing it, especially while you're cooking, it's not in a classroom where you yeah. can just go, oh, minus four. No, I guess it's minus five. Anyway, that's a very different thing. So there were a lot of tears. There was a lot of wailing. There was a lot of, why doesn't it work? There was a lot of calling my parents, wondering how I could make this impossible thing happen. Because the thing that's important to remember is nobody much lived in town. It wasn't like, you know, you could open the doors to a restaurant and have a flood of people come in. Sometimes there'd be 10 or 12 people for breakfast or maybe 25 people for lunch. These are not good numbers. You know, this just doesn't cover the bills. And breakfast is an inexpensive meal. It could be a three-buck meal. So it sort of seemed impossible. But my parents were very encouraging. And I like business. I like numbers. I like, like thinking about business. So for me, it was an interesting combination of opportunities to think about it from a hands-on standpoint, both from a more creative standpoint and then from a more business-like standpoint. It was definitely learning the hard way, though, man. I learned from you a classic one. Uh, you had a cherry muffin, a breakfast thing that had dried cherries in it. And one day, uh, apropos business experience, it was something like you were supposed to have a quarter cup or something. Uh -huh. I'm, I don't remember uh -huh. this exactly, but I put in four cups, <laughs> something like that. I remember you were like, Doug, you dundering blunderhead. And um, suddenly they came out and people were out in the dining room. I was feeling really stupid, like I cost, because these were really expensive. Yeah. And uh, then these compliments started yeah. <laughs> flooding in from the restaurant. And all morning long, there'd be compliments. And I kept looking away from you yeah, like, right. it's just oh, reminding her of how much oh these are costing. Oh my God, really? We, we lose 50 cents on every muffin probably. <laughs> I think one of the things, beside the fact that the Boge was really a beautiful place where you could get good food and you were pushing certain envelopes, in 1984, you came out with your cookbook, uh -huh. which is called Cafe Beaujolais, somewhat in the tradition of, say, what Alice Waters was doing at Chez Panisse. You came out with not only a narrative that was really quite nice at the beginning, you came out with all kinds of recipes. Uh -huh. And they were different. They were slightly different, and they were Nouvelle Cuisine. -y. They were kind of French country style, etc. You put tons into it. And I think it I think it changed her trajectory as well. Yeah. I had an employee, Mariah Bear, who mm. came to me one day and said, My dad would like to write a cookbook with you. Would you like to write a cookbook? I'm like, okay, she was a kid. And I'm like, who's your dad? My dad's John Bear. I'm like, oh, okay. So we met. John, very quirky person, very talented person. And he said, yeah, why don't we write a cookbook? That could be neat. I have a really good relationship with 10 Speed Press. And, you know, let's just see how it goes. And so basically, we did something that was so smart. He would interview me and tape it. And then his wife would transcribe all of these hours of conversation. And so when people say it sounds like you, it is me, yes. you know? And 10 Speed picked up the book. Once again, it was an impossible thing that never happens. I mean, people are always saying, oh, I want to write a book. Tell me about the industry. I'm like, well, first of all, that was, you know, many years ago and the industry has changed, but I didn't even know the industry then because I had this magical entree mm -hmm. into, into the world of having a published cookbook. So yeah, you know, the, it's arduous and, and shocking to pour your heart out. I wrote it longhand, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. 
at my parents' dining room table. Then you get it back with a million little pink post-its of all the things that need to be clarified, removed, changed in some way. You're like, what? My work of art? How dare you have a comment on that? (laughs) Right. We got through that phase, but yeah. Yes, and then we started to sell the book at the restaurant and made much more money on the book than we ever made on the restaurant. It picked up steam, and then I bring out one. When I worked for you, I also, I I liked this anyway, and then when I worked for you, I discovered how you made it. (laughs) It's the buttermilk cinnamon coffee cake. Oh, yeah. Now, one of the classics, I imagine they've still got some version of it there now. Um, We we make it at Harvest. Oh, you good, yeah. Oh, yeah, people love it. Yeah, it's a great one. Now, this is a classic one. It has kind of a streusel on top, Uh yeah? Uh And um, we'd all recognize a version of this from childhood. But yours went the extra step. The combination of buttermilk, maybe there's some extra cinnamon in it, I'm not sure. And some ginger. Yeah, and it was very nutty, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh And tell us how you took a classic recipe and just found a different way to do it. Well, it wasn't all that different. I don't know if Mm -hmm. I can really take credit. Okay. I I think one of the things that a skill that I inadvertently developed um, that I started honing at a young age was I love to read cookbooks. And my mom had a bunch of cookbooks where there were those little forewords, little header notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Beard talking about how he had caught fish and, and then they filleted it and they cooked it over an open fire and, you know, some little whatever romantic angle to this anecdote. And I was very charmed by these stories and I could read these books for hours. And of course, my mom had this crazy collection, but then I would read the recipe and those fascinated me. And I think I developed a real skill at a pretty young age for being able to read a recipe and have a feeling about how it was going to come out. Like, does this sound good? And that was, gosh, that was how many years ago now? I have no idea where that recipe came from. I don't even think I did that much to it. Maybe I added extra walnuts too, because It had a, it had a real um, abundance of everything, abundance of flavor, abundance of nuts. I mean, you really got a great coffee cake. It's a killer coffee cake, and for those listening in the Mendocino area, go to Harvest Market and get it. It's really good. <laughs> <Yes>. I'm just saying. <laughs> Sometimes the smell of that yeah. is like the most delicious smell in the entire world, and we probably made that cake a billion times and never got sick of that smell. It always was like, oh my God, that coffee cake. It's yeah. really good. It's really good. Now, I had a chance in, in 1989, I was working as a comedian with Tracy Burns, and Tracy got ill, and we had to get off the road for about six months. And I went to you, and I asked if you might have work, and you had work. You needed so many shifts picked up. And at the time, you were opening the brickery, too. You were opening uh-huh. the bakery, so uh-huh. you needed somebody to learn. I just basically was going to be an apprentice baker. That has stayed part of the Beaujolais, I as we know. know here so many 31 years later or 32 years later. Right. Uh, what were your hopes for the brickery? Because you had been a baker. Well, I that... found baking very challenging. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and a brick oven. Yeah, I mean, exactly. that's, you know, yeah. that's not just an electric oven. That was really um, something that was a dream of my husband at the time, Chris Kump, who was also the chef of the Beaujolais. And he had spent a lot of his life in France, in Europe, tootling around with his dad and had seen these wonderful brick ovens, literally people baking with brick ovens in the back of their VW bus and wonderful bread that people could get. And, And he was like, you know, let's build a brick oven. He did all kinds of research And we hired a man named Alan Scott, 
who was from Tasmania or oh New God. Zealand, something like that. And he was a famous person in the world of oven building. And he came and he had an oven workshop that, as a matter of fact, my dad participated in the, the kickoff weekend right. of that. It was an immense amount of work. And I think, I think Chris did an incredible job developing the recipes. He read all these recipes about fermentation and, you know, natural yeast and all of this sort of stuff. And we had those Banneton baskets right. that the bread, member that the right, bread yes. dough rose in, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It wasn't the kind of baking I had grown up doing. Uh-huh. It wasn't the Betty Crocker yeah. bakery. This was really traditional bread and it was amazing i thought those pizzas were amazing too it was the first time i i ever put beets on a pizza was, oh. <laughs> there we are in 1989 at, at the brickery so uh-huh. that was great this is one of the things i've always liked is that you've always taken on challenges i mm-hmm. mean you know there's a variety of those and then you brought out because i think one of the great parts of the Bosch at the time was the fabulous breakfast you came out with morning food which was a follow-up book i believe it's 1990. did you uh think to yourself i i want to talk about breakfast as such tell us about morning food and the kind of stuff you wanted to convey with that well it seemed like the natural next step Mm -hmm. i mean really my focus i loved breakfast and I remember at the beginning and for a few years people would say oh you could never I mean breakfast really you know because dinner was everybody's orientation dinner somehow had the gravitas and breakfast was so oh I don't know like a piece of toast and like you know your mom made it or something like that it wasn't a big deal but I am a morning person and I love breakfast and I thought to the contrary so anyway you know obviously we developed quite a repertoire of all kinds of different baked goods and, and omelets and things like that. And so John said, well, you know, let's do a breakfast cookbook too. And so we did do that one. It was really fun. It was really fun. It did come out in something like 1990. And then I never was exactly happy with how it came out, the actual mm-hmm. production values and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we went back to 10 Speed and said, could we redo it? I know that's kind of unusual, but and they were like, oh, okay. So they got a photographer who did a beautiful job. It was, it was fiddled with a bit, and ca- that came out in 06, oh, 2006. Oh, so you, you did a complete rebuild. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then 10 Speed said to me at the end of this, like, oh my gosh, if we had known you were going to do that kind of makeover, we would have issued it as an all-new book, not just sort of another morning food 2.0 or something like uh-huh. that but oh well whatever yeah it's very recommendable i wanted to mention that too and it's also 10 speed press mm-hmm. uh, i've also thought you were a great soup maker when i worked uh, for you and um over time any of your favorite soups that you really like a lot i have a philosophy about soup and yeah. that is that everybody should know how to make it I mean, I think it is such an accessible dish. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to be some kind of gourmet chef or know some fancy technique. These days, of course, there's everything from water-based to chicken stock to beef or whatever. You know, you can make it vegan if you want. You you don't have to just, um, you know, make chicken stock first and then go on from there. And I think um, my dad was a big influence in this soup thing. He was a huge soup nut. And so... I grew up thinking of soup as as a very delicious thing. And I mean, I will go into my refrigerator and see what I have. 
And I really was craving soup the other day. And I sauteed some onions and garlic and I threw in some fresh thyme. And then I took some fire roasted canned tomatoes and I cooked them in a, a really light chicken stock with some, yeah, more garlic, I think. And, and just cooked it, cooked it. And then I added some canned white beans. I mean, it's everything was kind of from a can. It wasn't any, you know, foraging out in the woods or anything. And then I used my that handheld mixer oh yeah and i i beat it up and whisked it it still had a little was a little chunky and that was great i had this delicious soup and i put it in the freezer and i have homemade soup all the time i mean it was that easy you know i think i learned from you about blending soups together i would cook a soup and i would i would have a soup and it would have all the different stuff in it Mm. but i wouldn't do the hand mixer Uh or putting it in a blender or something like that and I learned that from you, and it, I think it makes them that much more flavorful. Yeah, yeah. They really get powerful. Could I ask you how you would make your basic chicken stock? Okay, so I tend to keep things really simple. Good, good. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, I've done the version where you roast the bones and all that kind of stuff, and yes, it does give it a deeper flavor. But in real life, I'm fine with just taking my, sauteing some onions, some carrots, some celery. Usually I'm throwing in garlic. I might have a bay leaf and some fresh thyme. Put the chicken bones in, or you know, like you buy a roast chicken, or you roast your own chicken, and you have bones left over. I throw that in. And I bring it to a boil, and I cook it for a long time. Mm. And then I'll strain it and, and degrease it, And then I'll cook it down so it's more intense, really intense. And I might freeze some portion of that. And then when I pull it out, I'll add water to it and reconstitute it. You don't need to freeze it as is. You can Mm -hmm. boil it down and Mm -hmm. and reconstitute it yourself to any degree of richness you want. Mm -hmm. Some soups are better with just a light chicken Mm -hmm. stock. So that's all I do. Salt and pepper. Okay. Yeah, I just want to point out, for those listening uh, to this, that was one of the major secrets of this interview, (laughs) is how to make a good chicken stock, because that's a life lesson, my friend, just so you know. So about 20 years ago, you sold the Beaujolais after uh, 22 years or 23 23 years, two months and a day. Okay. (laughs) You had had the Beaujolais, (laughs) and you had made it, I guess you could say, world famous in a lot of ways, and you had really done some beautiful work and put Mendocino on the map as a culinary destination. About four years later, you went to work at Mendocino Coast Harvest Market, which is a a large supermarket here in Fort Bragg, California. But it's not a chain. It's just a great, great, Mm -hmm. family-owned, really nice place. And you got put to work building the deli section, prepared foods, overseeing catering. Is that true? It turned into that, yes. Okay, Uh good. This is a big operation, and you were hired by the owner of the market. Mm -hmm. Tom Honer. Tom is the owner, but his daughter, Jennifer Bosma, is really moving into that this is definitely putting your business skills to, to oh yeah use. a lot yeah. and yeah. the transformation this required and so on it's a big deal I yeah think. no it's it's been very very fun and challenging i was able to bring all of my expertise with cooking because they already had a, a deli section and it was i think ready to kind of move along with the times and incorporate maybe some healthier things or sort of more things that people were aware of. Like we didn't introduce kale immediately, but you know, it eventually comes to that point. And um, we didn't exactly know what form it would take, but Tom was like, I said, well, what does a culinary director do? He goes, I don't know. We've never had one before. You, you figure out what that person does. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, this is kind of fun. 
it was a lot of experimenting and seeing what people would like. I, I spent a lot of time in the bakery mm-hmm. initially, and that was fascinating. And Julia Conway had really gotten the cheese department into an amazing level of, of offering, and, and I took over when she left. And so that's been something that's been super fun. But for me, I think one of the funnest things, and this was a wonderful counterpoint to working in the back of the house, is I got to be with the public. And that, to me, is so incredibly fun. I love retail. I'd had a little experience when I worked at the cheese shop Mm -hmm. in Mendocino back in 76, I guess. Because when you're in a kitchen, you're always wondering, are they liking it? Are they liking it? Are they eating it? Are they cleaning their plates? Are they, you know, what are they saying? And now, you know, I can go out and talk with people about stuff. And people open up and they're like, oh, well, you know, my son gave me a package of quinoa. This is before quinoa was known. Quinoa, and I just don't know what to do with it. Right. So you got to talk with people and, and figure out stuff. And sometimes I didn't know what to do with stuff either, and or I've never heard of something. I'm like, you know what? Let me get my phone and let's just figure it out together. And so you send people off and they really feel more confident and come back and tell me about stuff. And so... That retail component was hugely fascinating to me. It has been this whole time. They have a great deli section. They have a superb salad bar, at least before COVID. Right. I think that will be coming back hopefully soon. Maybe. Having said that, you have completely changed and revamped the place. Mm-hmm. And I think Tom's done well by hiring you. And it, it's, it's been a completely different challenge. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's kind of classic that you took it on after 20-some years at the Bose. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask you sort of a, a quick round here. Mm-hmm. I've got some. I want, I want to ask you a few quirky questions. I mentioned to you what might be your top three spices or seasonings. They don't have to be three. But I was going to say, if you were stuck on a desert island and you were only able to bring three or maybe at the most five seasonings or spices with you, what would Margaret Fox bring onto that desert isle? Okay, so salt and pepper, absolutely. Okay, let's count them as given. Oh, salt okay. Salt and pepper. Okay, okay. got okay. it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wish more people counted yeah. them as given. Okay, I have we to give We need more you. seasoning in the yeah. world. Yes. Um, Spanish smoked paprika. I love this. And you can buy a little tin of this amazingly potent smoky paprika. I'll let you smell it after the, the, um, our little time together. And it is amazing because, well, you could sprinkle it on anything. You could make deviled eggs and finish it with a little bit of that. But I loved to use it in tomato sauce, just a subtle amount. It doesn't create that umami mm-hmm. component, but it creates a depth that is so delicious. It's sort of the equivalent, in a way, of adding coffee to a chocolate dessert, oh, where yeah. okay. you know where it just amplifies it and makes it mm-hmm. so rich and big. And my daughter, when I started doing this, she was quite the connoisseur of lasagna, and she was like, "Mom, what have you done?" I said, "Well, I added." some smoked paprika. She goes, I love this. And over the years, she would be able to taste one spoonful of something and go, you have smoked paprika in here, don't you? And I'm like, oh my God, yes, you can really tell. So Mm -hmm. I would say that by far is my most favorite thing. Mm -hmm. Gosh, anything else? Oh, so can it be fresh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. 
I love fresh thyme. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, basil. Gotta oh, have yeah. basil. Right. What else? And I love parsley. I love chives. I love chervil. I love all those fresh herbs. Um, okay. I, I think even some tarragon used yeah. kind of with with a little bit of restraint. I yeah. like all that. Yeah. I Because of customs on this desert island, I'm going to have to stop yeah. you there. <laughs> okay. But I'm appreciating the fact that you could go on here. Good. <laughs> And then also, I, I threw this one, I wanted to throw this, I read a book years ago called Self-Sufficiency by an Englishman, a back-to-the-lander by the name of John Seymour, and he has the following quote, and I love this quote because I want you to comment on it. Good food is inconceivable without onions. I, I agree. I, I totally agree. Absolutely. I know nothing, nothing makes me sadder than when somebody asks does this have onions in it because i'm allergic or i don't like them i'm like no onions i couldn't even imagine it it's such an important component and the the whole allium family you know every everything leaks and you've got chives and i mean look at all the different ways they manifest i mean they're so great chive blossoms yeah well the allium family has of course maybe its kingmaker might be mr garlic oh yeah and i wondered if you i was i threw this question do you like garlic as much as i do (laughs) yes i do love garlic i do yeah i love it too it's just wonderful one other big question here you're arriving at the pearly gates okay you know this is many years from now you you've uh, you've had a wonderful life and you suddenly you you you're gone and uh, you're heading up to St. Peter at the mm-hmm. Pearly Gates. Mm-hmm. And he goes, "Oh great, Margaret Fox is is here finally. Margaret Fox is here." <laughs> and I just want you to know, St. Peter says, uh, "The big guy is expecting you to cook tonight. What will you be serving him?" Oh my. Well, let's see. So I can I can call forth any ingredient. Yes, anything. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um first of all, my menu will have no balsamic vinegar in it. <laughs> I just want to go on record as saying that. It's been overdone. Oh, up the yin-yang. I'm really tired of that flavor. Okay, so I would definitely start with probably a fresh tomato salad. I adore ripe, perfect tomatoes. And it could be, it could have heirloom and red, it could have cherry, it could have just, you know, yellow and red and all these great colors and it would be wonderful. And definitely salt and pepper on it. And it could have some, um, oh, you know, julienne uh, chiffonade of basil or, or fresh basil or something like that. And it could be that simple. Oh, a drizzle of olive oil. And if you have to, I mean, you know, if he or she wanted it, um, it, there could be some fresh mozzarella. Okay, great. I I love that. Sort of move toward the caprese side of things, but no balsamic vinegar. (laughs) Please, people. Enough with that. Good. So that's the salad. Would there be an entree that would be beyond the salad? Yeah. What would that be? Hmm. Well, I've always been a huge fan of roast chicken. I mean, I love a superbly roasted chicken with a lemon and maybe garlic and thyme and stuff in the cavity mm-hmm. and just baked, roasted till its skin is crispy. I mean, I just think that is the best. And I am also a huge fan of really good mashed potatoes. Oh, yeah. You know, yellow and, and russets mixed. And I love all kinds of vegetables. I mean, even like, okay, so my real favorite is green beans. I adore green beans. 
really, if I could have any, I'd love the Romano. Those are the flatter oh. kind. They have a very short season. I adore those. But also, I'll just take regular delicious green beans. Yeah. yeah. Good. And, well, yeah. Well, that sounds great. Um, I hear it on uh, Ken's just signaling me that St. Peter is, is, is actually ecstatic oh, over is your well, I haven't your even menu. mentioned dessert. Oh, oh, please. Oh, apropos. Please. Oh, excuse oh, please. me. Thank you, Ken. Sorry. Um, of course, that's one of your strengths, too. Um, I think I would make, I haven't made this in years, it's so good, a Queen Mother's chocolate cake. Did I ever make that? Yeah, when you I think were? you did. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, it's a nut, um, a almond, a ground almonds as the base, and it's very delicious chocolate cake served with a little bit of schlagzana on oh, it, man. and you're off to the races. Great. So uh, topping it off, and I believe Ken's signaling me that the big guy is enjoying the heck out of it, can hardly wait to start. Uh, please let her stay a while longer down here. So good. If I may interject, Jesus wept, but God drools. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Now, we just want to mention, in addition to you being at Harvest Market as the culinary director, you also have a beautiful house here in Mendocino that uh, it's called Hummingbird Haven. Hummingbird Haven, mm-hmm. which is uh, a kind of a place that, uh, kind of an Airbnb uh-huh, place. Uh-huh. It's also available, and we're looking out the kitchen window now, and it's got a phenomenal late afternoon view. The sun is beating down, there's all kinds of beautiful flowers. So it's been wonderful talking to you, Margaret. Like I said, I had the good fortune to work for you and learn from you for five months back in 1989. I've always admired and loved your food. So (laughs) thank thank you. you very much for being part of Snap Sessions. Well, thank you. Thanks, Doug. Thanks to our artist of the show, chef, culinary director, author, and entrepreneur, Margaret Fox. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack of all trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.